Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Elsie Granderson, and this is Life Out Loud. I was sitting ringside at Madison Square Garden when Andy Ruiz Jr. pulled off one of the biggest upsets in boxing history and became the first Mexican boxer to be a world heavyweight champion. Heavyweight champion of the world, Andy Destroyer! I was at Wimbledon when Andy Murray beat Novak Djokovic in 2013 to become the first British man to win the singles title since Fred Perry in 1936. And I was in the Allegiant Stadium press box when Carl Nassib became the first openly gay man to play on Sundays. Well, technically it was a Monday night football game, but you get the point. Carl Nassib had the hit on Jackson who was down. We've heard the stories from the former players like Ezra Tuallo. We've heard the stories from the practice squad thanks to Wade Davis and the preseason thanks to Michael Sam. And now, finally, thanks to Carl Nassib, the regular season and the postseason are checked off. You know those towels that teams give fans to wave around during games? I have that towel from that game that Carl Nassib played in because it's history. The Dave Coppay story was published in 1977, proving that there were gay men in the NFL, but nearly 45 years would go by before one would be out. So yeah. I kept that towel, and the program book, and the placeholder that had my name on it. I kept it all, because it's history, you know? And I waited my whole life for this moment in history. So I have Jim Bozinski and Sid Ziegler, the founders of Outsports.com, the website most responsible for normalizing queer athletes. For more than 20 years, Jim and Sid have provided a platform for LGBTQ plus athletes, coaches, and administrators to come out and share their stories, while also working behind the scenes with sports leagues, the NCAA, and corporations to help create a more inclusive environment. Listen, you don't do that kind of work for two decades to try to get rich. You do it so that one day a Carl Nassib can make history. Or a Timothy LeDuc. When they take to the ice in Beijing for the Winter Olympics, they will be doing so as the first out non-binary athlete in history. Now, I know I can hear some of you asking, what's non-binary? Well, instead of me answering that question, we'll just ask the two-time U.S. national champion to share their thoughts on the matter, as well as how being LGBTQ plus has impacted their journey to the Olympics. It's a fascinating conversation, especially when you consider that scoring is so subjective. So do you present in a way that could get higher scores, but maybe appease bigotry? Or do you stay true to yourself and risk not meddling? Afterwards, we check in with Jim and Sid to discuss the current state of LGBTQ plus athletics. T, 
Timothy, Timothy, Timothy. Baby, I want to jump right into it because I have been doing research on your story and I'm just like, wow, I can't believe they did that. <laughs> so 18 years old, you wake your parents up to tell them that you're gay? And mm -hmm. yeah, in the most dramatic way possible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want you to set the scene. Was this a holiday weekend? Was this like at three o'clock in the morning? Did they just go to bed? Like, could you paint a picture for us as to what this first coming out process was like for you? Summer of uh, 2008, I just graduated high school. Um, I was preparing for my first semester of college and um, I'd come up to a couple of people but was really struggling with it and just felt really disconnected from my family and from my support system. And so um, I'd been battling going back and forth on whether or not I should say anything or, or not. And finally, um, I, I had just had many sleepless nights and, and finally just um, at three in the morning <laughs> one time. Three in the morning. Finally was like, I can't take it. I got to do this. If it's it, not now, then not ever. Was it a knock? I'm so obsessed with this. Was it a knock at the door? Was the door open? Like, what was that scene like at 3 a.m. in the morning for you to come out to your parents? I actually sat outside their door for a good hour, um, just like torturing myself, um, trying to get up the courage to finally do it. And then I like I knocked and then hoped that they didn't hear me and <laughs> that they stayed asleep. And so they opened the door and they're like, "What? What's wrong? What's going on?" And I was like, "Nothing. I'll, never mind. We'll, we'll talk in the morning." And they're like, "No, what's going on? Like something's wrong." And I was like, "Okay, I have to tell you something." Um, and then we just kind of dove right into the conversation. I was like. I, I want to tell you this because I want you to be a part of my life and I want to be closer with you. And I can't do that unless I share this with you. 10 years later, are you knocking on their door again to talk about how you identify? So it was in those 10 years, such a massive transformation had happened because we were on the train from my apartment in Irving, Texas to downtown Dallas. Uh, on our way to the Trans Pride Rally during Pride Month. And, um, you know, I had put on um, some makeup before we left um, in the colors of the genderqueer flag. And so we were on the train, you know, just kind of chatting. And I, I turned to my parents and I say, do you like my makeup? And they're like, yeah, it looks really good. What are the colors for? And I was like, so this is the genderqueer flag. And I wanted to tell you that I identify now as non-binary and um, I'm starting to try to explore my gender and better understand um, who Timothy is. And they're like, Okay, awesome. Um, you know, we don't know tons about that, but we're really excited to learn and we love you and thank you for telling us. And, you know, we got off the train and went and marched in the Trans Pride Rally, followed by um, the big uh, Pride Rally um, on the fairgrounds in Dallas. What happened over the course of those 10 years that took your parents from being, you know, obviously shocked to find out this news at three o'clock in the morning, but also it's my understanding that they didn't take to it too kindly because of your religious background to being on a train, you're saying, oh, hey, I'm still exploring, you know, my identity, my pronouns. And I'm like going, great, let us know what's going on. <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> it's yeah, it is. It's a really remarkable trans transformation. And um, I never forget how fortunate I am to have the family that I do. So when I originally came out to them, um, they reassured me that they loved me. They said, Timothy, we love you, but you have to stay celibate. You can't act on your same sex attraction. It, it, it goes against everything that we know. It goes against what God wants for you. And I believed it um, and spent a lot of time trying to understand how I was going to live my life um, without ever having 
a partner or ever having marriage or children or anything, um, because that's something I'd always wanted and always seen for myself. And, you know, through the course of just learning and becoming more connected with queer people and through honestly watching the show Will and Grace, um, I learned, oh, wait, there's actually nothing wrong with me. And um, my parents really struggled with it because they, they saw the pain and the hurt in me and they had this this love for their child, but something didn't connect with their beliefs. And so they they just dove headfirst and they did so much research and reading and talking to people and Finally, they were able to understand it better and really prioritize the well-being and love for their child, the well-being of their child and their love for their child over, you know, this belief that had them, you know, feeling a really negative way about it. What do we get wrong about this conversation? And by we, I mean the LGBTQ community. There are a lot of um, misconceptions or misunderstandings about what it means to be non-binary, mostly I think because it means so many different things to different people. There's no one one way to be non-binary in the same way that there's no one way we have to be, a person has to be a man or a woman. I think a lot of times people try to bring it back to biology and it's a fundamental misunderstanding that biology and gender are two different things and, and every reputable, reputable academic institution has shown us that gender and sex are different and that neither are binary, both of them are bimodal, which means that there is overlap. So people try really hard to say that women and men are fundamentally different creatures in biology when in fact there is a lot of interlap. Um, and we know this because intersex people have always existed. Um, and the same goes for gender. Non-binary and trans people have always existed and, and have existed and been celebrated in so many cultures over time. And so it's, uh, it just often is erased because we get stuck in this binary thinking. So. Um, I think another misconception as well um, is that binary, uh, non-binary people owe you androgyny or have to present in a way that they appear non-binary. And again, there's no one set way that a person has to be non-binary or present themselves, again, as a man, a woman, or non-binary person, a trans person, or anything. So, And I'm still exploring these things. You know, I, I participate in a very gendered sport, and so it's really difficult for me sometimes to reconcile how I present authentically and still excel in my sport. And that's, I have a really wonderful partner in, in my skating partner, Ashley King Gribble. And it's something we're continuing to navigate together. I'm glad you brought up the part of our presentation because I'll be honest with you, when I first learned of you and saw what you look like, I was like, there's no way I would not hit on this dude in a bar. And I'm sure that, you know, there are a lot of gay men who feel the same way. How do you handle those type of conversations? Hmm. You know, yeah, I, I certainly understand that, especially when I'm on the ice, I present in a way that many people will see me as, as male um, or see me as a man. Um, and I understand that, you know, I have a beard. Um, I sometimes wear makeup when I compete, but not always. I, I would again remind people that, um, biological factors such as having a beard or chest hair or, you know, appearing a certain way is, is biology. I'm going to need you to calm down describing <laughs> yourself, by the way. I'm going to need you to calm down. I know you have chest hair. I know you have a great beard. I'm going to need you to calm down. Thank you. I worked really hard on this beard. I, I grew it myself. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, people will often often look at my physical characteristics and, and see man, but I don't always present this way. You know, I do like to wear makeup and clothes that are have been gendered as female. Um, you know, I guess when people assume that, I just um, remind them that, no, actually, I am non-binary, and um, it's, I'm completely valid in that way. But um, 
Yeah, I, I actually, I, I will admit, since I've been um, come out openly as non-binary, I haven't really had any opportunities to to be hit on because we've been in this pandemic for so long and it's not like I'm going out to, <laughs> to bars where I'm really around people or exposed to anyone. So I'm, I've, I'm really fortunate to have uh, found my boyfriend um, through this pandemic. Um, and I, I will just say like, he has just been incredible in helping me feel valid and always being my cheerleader. Um, and reminding me of the ways that I'm I'm valid when I don't necessarily feel that myself. How did you two meet? So we met online, and uh, you know we had we had some conversations online, and um, when you know we obviously had to to talk about COVID safety just because um, you know we're we're still in a pandemic. Um, and after you know we had some discussions and spent some time talking online, we agreed to meet in person, and I mean we just we hit it off immediately um, from the first time that we met we haven't spent a day not speaking to each other i mean um we facetimed with each other for hours and hours each day when we um first started talking and i don't know i i've just honestly waited my whole life for this kind of connection with a person mm. i'm 31 and just now having my first boyfriend this is your first boyfriend my, my yeah my first my first relationship um i've waited for it 31 because you know it just i never clicked with someone the way that i clicked with jerry um and it was it was definitely worth waiting for that is so beautiful. What was it about the dynamic that clicked for you where others didn't? And then, you know, as a follow-up, was Jerry comfortable with the pronouns they and them, or were you having to kind of help him through that? I think what's different about Jerry compared to other people I've tried to date in the past was Jerry saw me as me immediately. And I never felt like I had to change myself or masculinize myself. And that's something that like, as you know, in my, I came out and, and finally started living my truth as a non-binary person in my later twenties. And so my life up to that point had all been about putting on masculinity for my safety, um, for my success, uh, in order to be taken seriously. I learned very quickly from a very early age that I needed to present in a masculine way or do things in accordance with masculinity in order to do anything that I wanted in, and in order to be safe. So in my later 20s, you know, learning this about myself, learning, hey, authentically, I'm not a man. I don't have to, to embody masculinity all the time. I love embodying femininity and masculinity both. And so picking the pieces away of all of this sort of forced masculinity I've put on my whole life and finding, you know, who I was authentically underneath is really challenging, especially when dating. Um, I found that when I would, would date guys, I would revert, you know, to sort of this masculine presentation that I had just learned to be secure in over time. Or I would revert to masculinity because I thought it's what they wanted me to be. Mm. And I was always just so at odds and never, never could feel like I could be authentic with anyone until I met Jerry. And he immediately used my pronouns without any problem. He was the first person to stand up for me anytime someone would misgender me and use the wrong pronouns. And, you know, he, he watches me do my makeup in the morning and is just like, you're so beautiful. Wow. Um, you know, and he's just a constant reminder of like, I, I'm valid, you know, in the times when I don't feel valid or feel secure, um, he's always the first person to remind me that I am valid. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that it, it took a long time to find, but it was worth waiting for. Okay. I don't need to like sit in the front row of your wedding, but if I can get like a middle seat, that would be fantastic. Just so I can see who's all there. Absolutely. Just a little bug in your ear. Yeah. Um, shifting gears for a second. 
you you talked about feeling the need to present you know masculine in a lot of spaces i'm assuming a lot of those spaces dealt with skating and mm-hmm. conversations you've had to have with other parents as it pertains to skating did anyone not want to skate with you because you were gay or because of your gender expression yeah absolutely so um one of my earliest memories was uh when i was four years old um I was at church in like a Sunday school group and one of the girls let me put on a sparkly headband and I Mm. never felt better like in my life up to that point. I was like, I feel gorgeous. I'm wearing the sparkly headband. I'm going to run around all day in it. And one of the Sunday school teachers snatched it off my head and scolded me and said, boys don't wear stuff like that. And that was the first time I was like, wait, what? You know, and and from then on, it's just through my life, through each space that I entered, I learned slowly and surely what I had to do to be safe and to get what I wanted and um, to be taken seriously. What did that look like? Like, what does safety look like for an openly gay, non-binary skater? In terms of skating, safety, I guess, would mean securing your reputation with the judges. I don't feel in physical, like I'm, I'm in physical danger in skating spaces, being openly queer, but that is an experience that many queer people that are presenting authentically deal with. I think for me, being taken seriously or, or securing safety in my sport means presenting in a way that I can still get the scores from the judges that I feel like I deserve for what I do on the ice. You know, I learned very early in my career in skating from watching TV that men were expected to present a certain way. Otherwise, there were serious consequences. And Johnny Weir comes uh, to mind when I think about this, looking at the way commentators treated him, the way the judges treated him for presenting in ways that were less masculine. And and he was nothing but himself on the ice. And I I remember uh, other skaters that would literally say things about Johnny Weir like, I don't want to see this. I literally do not want to see this on the ice. This is not the men's figure skating I want to see. And so those were all really formative experiences as I moved through the sport. And so, you know, now switching to pair skating, it was really difficult for me because girls would not want to skate with me because, you know, I was gay or they felt like it was a liability. Um, They felt like maybe the judges would not score us as high as a team because I was a queer skater. There was even a parent that said, you know, you need to keep this to yourself. This is your choice, but don't tell anyone in my family. They may try to perform an exorcism on you. Um, wait, wait, what? Yeah, uh, it was <laughs> it was a fun situation. The the mom of, of a girl that I was trying out with just asked me to keep it to myself. An exorcism? Yeah, I know it sounds extreme, but uh, I guess that's just that's where they were at. I mean, I guess pray the gay away is around the corner from exorcism, <laughs> but 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 it just sounds odd that that would be the word that they would use in that situation. Yeah, I'm so sorry, Timothy. Yeah, I I think people honestly think it's it's demonic. You know, it's it's part of my experience. I don't, it, and it's helped shape me into you know the person I am today. And I'm, I'm hopeful that speaking about this, it's not it's not to like have anyone feel sorry for me in any way. It's it's simply to share my experience and, and hope that we can move the conversation forward and, and make a pathway for other people to come through the sport, other people to come into pair skating and ice dance and feel like they can be authentic and be themselves and lead with what makes them unique and special, and still be able to find a partner and find their success in sport. Is it the international nature of Olympics in general and understanding that, you know, judges from different countries with different sensibilities in regards to this conversation influences your overall score? Is is that those potholes that you are trying to avoid? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a, that's kind of a hard question to answer because um, you know, there's skating is such a subjective sport. You know, you can look at your score sheet and you see an element that you think you did well, and the judges' marks may range from a plus one up to a plus five, and there's so many different reasons why that judge could have given a plus five versus the judge could have given a plus one. I like to think that me being a queer athlete or me wearing makeup on the ice isn't one of the reasons a judge would give lower scores, but it's it could be a possibility. You know, it's it's been the nature of sports for, I guess in my experience, as long as I can remember, um, sports is a place that really seeks to uphold gender roles um, and really seeks to send a message um, of sex being very binary rather than being any kind of overlap. Um, and I think especially in figure skating, we see that message reproduced over and over and over in much of the successful pair teams and, and ice dance teams over time. You know, we see this narrative of uh, the woman is expected to be fragile and demure and um, pristine, and the man is meant to embody masculinity and come in to save the woman. And that's often kind of the, the sort of romantic story that you see on the ice. And I don't think there's necessarily anything inherently wrong with telling that story or, or having a romantic story in your partnership. But I feel like in figure skating that is so centered and that that narrative is so powerful that any other narrative, there's no room for it. And there's no space for other skaters to tell other stories in skating. So when people uh, watch Ashley and I compete, that's hopefully what they see is, is an alternative, is a different narrative that is not romantic, but that can showcase two people just being authentically themselves and creating something beautiful together. How did you and Ashley find each other and how did you gain the trust that she wouldn't turn her back on you because of who you were? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. So Ashley and I competed against each other for a long time. Um, <laughs> and she always beat me, by the way. Competed against each other? Yep. <laughs> so from, uh, I want to say 2009 to 2012, we were competitors. We were actually on the same junior world team together as well. And... Uh, we both took a step aside from pairs for a couple of years. And then in 2016, I came back from retirement um, to try to, to compete again. And um, our high performance director um, suggested I, I skate with Ashley. And of course, I jumped as, as soon as he said the name because, you know, I knew who Ashley was. I knew what she could do from competing against her for so long. Um, and we just had just immediate synergy. Um, we got along perfectly right from the start. You know, we both have the same really stupid sense of humor. Um, so like the ability to just like drag each other and read each other right from the start of our partnership, like we knew we were going to be okay, you know, <laughs> and still to this day, like nobody can read me down like Ashley can, you know, what was the first thing she said to you that you were like, going, okay, I can, I can roll with this. I don't know if I remember the, the first thing, but, um, you know, like just the other day, like, uh, we were doing like a basic warm up exercise and I like trip, um, over, you know, fresh air. And she just looks at me and she's like, you are such an idiot, like, you know, and it, it's all in fun. It's all, it's all in mutual respect. Um, but you know, our sport is so, so hard. We are pushing ourselves to the max every day, constantly trying to push ourselves out of our comfort zone and get better. So if you can do that with someone that you like and that, <laughs> that you can do it with a smile and a laugh, it just makes it a little bit easier. So we're really fortunate to have that. I definitely cannot wait to see you two compete. And I'll just be kind of imagining the dialogue that's going on between the two of you in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there'll probably be some puns and dad jokes being thrown around. Nervous? You know, I won't lie. There's There are nerves um, in competition. Um, 
I don't know what, what to expect at the Olympics so much because, you know, we've spent so much time focusing on just trying to get to the Olympics that now that we're there, I, I want to say that we're just going to savor the experience and really enjoy it. Um, but often, you know, us just like slipping a joke to one another is, is a way of just reminding each other, hey, it's just me. Hey, it, this is just something that we do every day in practice. Don't make it any harder than it is. But at the same time, this is a practice that only happens once every four years. Mm-hmm. And that's in a non-pandemic year. <laughs> yeah, it is still like a really special opportunity. And, you know, it, it, the reality of it hasn't really fully hit me. Because um, when I say that I've been dreaming about the Olympics for 20 years, I mean really seriously dreaming. And all of my actions have been centered around trying to make the Olympic team in the last 20 years. So, um no, the, the seriousness of it is not lost on me. And, and yet, I'm just looking forward to savoring the experience. What is it like to finally achieve this dream you've had for 20 years, knowing that once you finally have it, you also are in a lot of ways, whether you want to or not, carrying the hopes and dreams and expectations mm-hmm. of this community? That's such a good question. And I'm, I'm really glad you asked me that because I sort of expected something to be different once I made the Olympic team. And that's really not been my experience in the last couple of weeks since making the team. And the the thing that has really surprised me about this experience that I, I really, really appreciate is what means more to me, I think, than accomplishing this lifelong goal and making the Olympic team is thinking about all of the work that I have put in and all of the days when I got up out of bed when I literally thought that I couldn't, all the days when I pushed myself to do one more set at the gym or one more section on the ice when I was convinced that I could not, all of the days when I just wanted to quit and I didn't, all the competitions when I was convinced that I needed to withdraw and quit, I was too scared or I I thought for sure I was gonna fail and I didn't and I persevered. All of the times when I, you know, could have been mean to myself or mean to my partner and I chose to be kind instead, all of those things and putting in the work and and doing this to the best of my abilities, that means more to me than actually making the team. And I I didn't expect that. And that that makes me hopeful that if I didn't make the team, I would still feel really satisfied with what I've done with my career. I'm hopeful that when people watch me in the Olympics and, and they see Ashley's in my story, that the praise of being the first openly non-binary athlete in the Olympics isn't centered around me and isn't centered around honoring me, but more the narrative shifts to hopefully more people can feel like they can lead with authenticity. More people feel like they can enter figure skating and enter sports and celebrate what makes them different and unique rather than feeling like they have to change themselves in order to, to achieve success. So if you don't meddle, you still view it as a success. Oh yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. And you know, maybe I'm. I think there's a lot of athletes that are like this. You know, obviously athletes want results. We work so hard. We want medals. I've never been quite as motivated by the external things. I care more about what I think about myself because only I know the effort that I put in. And realistically, looking at you know the lineup for the Olympics and looking at the world rankings and kind of the season's best scores leading into this competition, I think a great great finish for Ashley and I would be top five. We would be ecstatic about that. At the same time, it is one competition and ice is really slippery. And all it takes is for us to come through with, you know, bringing the house down, skating lights out and one person ahead of us to make a mistake. And hey, we're on the podium. So 
anything could happen. You are, are so wonderful to, to, to speak with, and you are such a fantastic role model for, for not just young people, but I think all of us. I'm curious that when you finally hang up your skates, whatever that means to you, would you think about being a commentator or still being involved as a coach with the sport? Figure skating will always be a part of my life. Um, from the moment that I saw it, when I saw the 2002 Olympics on TV, I knew I had to be a part of this. You know, I was I was a kid from Iowa p- trying to play football and soccer and do what all the other boys in my community did. And I finally saw this artistry and athleticism and rhinestones and drama and musicality and everything. I finally saw myself in something. I will never not have figure skating be a part of my life. It has shaped me in so many ways and saved me in so many ways. You know, there's a lot of different things that can be done in skating, um, but it will always be a part of my life. And I I always hope to have the opportunity to try to shape it in ways that make it more inclusive and more accessible to people that are just not often represented in the archetypes of success in the sport. I am so excited to see you on the ice. Thank you. I'm so excited to see you be your best self. I'm looking forward to it very, very much so. Thank you. Me too. But please know that I and all of us of the Life Out Loud family are so proud of you and we cannot wait to see you represent the rainbow at the olympics yes absolutely thank you timothy thank you lz i really appreciate it thank you so much hey i'm andy mitchell a new york times best-selling author and i'm sabrina kohlberg a morning television producer we're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years and we both love to talk about being parents yes but also pop culture so we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities writers and fellow scholars of tv and movies cinema really about what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch from abc audio and good morning america pop culture moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts In 2011, Outsports.com listed its 100 most important moments in LGBTQ plus sports history. Now, the top 10, you know, had the usual suspects, Martina Navratilova and Billie Jean King. Uh, Dave Coppé coming out was number one. But early on in my life, in my journey, the one story that impacted me the most was the coming out story of a baseball player, Billy Bean, in 1999. How afraid were you every day someone would learn your secret? I can only imagine what it feels like to be a fugitive. I felt like it was tattooed on my forehead, and so I had to put up this strong demeanor, and, you know, there's no way. No one's going to interfere with my career. When I was in high school working at the concession stand at Tiger Stadium, Billy was on the roster. Here's the 1-1 pitch. He lines it to right field. And then, lo and behold, I get four hits in my, you know, first game, entire major league record, and... Oh, it is not in time! I'm the next best thing that ever hit the Detroit. Now, I don't know for certain if the days I worked were the days he played, but I do know he was on the team, and the thought that I cheered for a gay baseball player just trips me out, in a good way. Then Billy gets traded to the Dodgers, which is like my second favorite team, which is even crazier. Anyway, the point being is that we've been having this debate about gay and lesbian athletes for decades, but this topic, this conversation has obviously expanded beyond that, with unfortunately transgender youth finding themselves in the center of a culture war. A war that Jim Bozinski and Sid Ziegler from Outsports.com are quite familiar with. Jim and Sid, thank you so much for joining us here on Life Out Loud. 
you know, the three of us have known each other and have been friends and have been in this this area of LGBTQ equality and sports for like 20 years. <laughs> My first question is, how would you assess the progress? I, I, I mean, for me, LZ, people talk about, you know, sports needing to change. And for me, sports have changed. You know, what, what the, the atmosphere that we all saw 20 years ago, it just doesn't exist today. A place where, I mean, you had the Greg Congdon story in, in Pennsylvania where he was, you know, outed and driven off of a high school wrestling team. I can't tell you the last time that I heard a story like that. And, you know, what, what, what I focus on in this work that we do is trying to open people's eyes to the fact that you, you don't have to be afraid. Chances are extremely good that your teammates are going to accept you, that your coach is not going to kick you off the team, that fans are not going to boo you. So for me, it's been a sea change from the days of, of Greg Congdon. And, you know, I just want to open people's eyes to how much it's changed. I mostly concur. Uh, I mean, it, it's been, it, I mean, light years. I mean, we have uh, a list of out Olympians for the Winter Olympians uh, right now. We have 33. There were 15 in uh, South Korea four years ago. And four years ago, we had the first man ever, an out uh, Olymp uh, Winter Olympian, and we have 11 now. Um, so that's a big improvement. And we see in, I think, all the sports leagues, all the pro sports leagues say the right thing. They have the right policies, but you still have to acknowledge that other than Carl Nassib, there is nobody out in pro baseball, basketball, hockey, or football. And in major college sports, basketball and football division one, there's zero. So there's still that desert area of what you might call the elite sports and the elite sports leagues that continue to just have nobody, virtually nobody out. And I think that's the barrier that has to be broken down because at the lower college level and the high school level, there are so many people out that when out sports tells coming out stories about them, people appreciate them, but it used to be a bigger deal. Oh my God, there's a cross country runner that's out, you know, 15 years ago would have been a bigger story than it is now. It's kind of like, oh, just another cross country runner. So um, I think there's been huge progress, but there's still a lot of work to be done to you know, especially in the in the area that most people pay attention to, which are the major pro and, and college sports. I actually think that, I mean, Jim and I, we agree. You know, it, I think what that really reflects is the fear that I was talking about. This, this idea, the addiction to the way sports used to be. We did a study with the University of Winchester last year, and, and we surveyed a thousand high school and college athletes on their experiences actually coming out. And of the thousand athletes and this included football basketball all the big sports men's sports women's sports only five percent said they had an overall negative experience coming out to to teammates and even most of those expressed some support that they had that they had experienced so when athletes actually come out they find widespread support but there is still this idea that football is homophobic, and I just don't think it's true. In my mind, a big factor why we don't have a lot more pros come out, because even if it's a five-day media story, it's a media story. Like, straight people don't have to declare that they're straight. Tom Brady never had to declare he was straight. He just started marrying supermodels, um, and we kind of got the point. And I think with, with gay men especially, there's this idea you have to have the coming-out announcement. You have to do something like uh, NASA did, 
before people can you can be identified. Even with our outsports list of Olympians, there are a lot of people Sid and I are can certainly know are gay, but they haven't declared it publicly or they have a social media profile that's a little bit in the gray area. So we just we don't put them on the list of out athletes because we don't consider them out. So I think the coming out process itself is a thing that stops a lot of people from maybe going the next step. You know, one of the barometers that I love to look at when it comes to this conversation isn't necessarily on the professional level because, let's face it, just mathematically, it's nearly impossible for anyone to become a professional in their sport. You know, mm -hmm. we just know that from the from the numbers in terms of what it takes from the journey from being an amateur in high school through whatever college or minor league level of sports that you're participating in and then becoming like a professional. There's very, very few people that can make that journey. But on the initial wrong, if you will, when it comes to like high school sports, you know, I remember being in the crowd during the Millennium March when Corey Johnson spoke. Please welcome my hero, Corey Johnson. And for those who don't recall, Corey Johnson was captain of his high school football team, I believe back in 1999, 2000. And when he came out, it was a huge story. A1 in the uh, New York Times. And as I said, he, he, he ended up giving a speech at this huge LGBTQ march in DC. And it was a huge, huge story. I said, guys, I have something to tell you. We've played football for however many years and I still want you to be my friend. I want to let you know something very important to me. I'm coming out as an openly gay student in this school, and I'd love your support. But today, not that it's not a, you know, significant, but there are so many young people on the high school level who are open and celebrated or embraced and part of the team without, you know, hardly any of the stories that we heard from Corey in terms of, you know, what the opposition they're saying to them, or even what their own coaching and teammates may be saying to them. For me, that's where I, I look and find, you know, peace and joy in terms of the progress at the high school level. Oh, totally agree. And I, I do think that the point you made about Corey, Corey Johnson's story today would be an outsports story. It would be picked up maybe by other LGBTQ media outlets, but go no further there. It would never be a one of the New York Times. And that definitely shows the progress. And I think the survey Sid alluded to really showed that, that, you know, people have an initial fear of coming out. And when they come out to their teams, it's like, oh, this was sort of a non-issue. And I, part of that, LZ, has been, you know, frankly, our strategy at Outsports to flood people's Twitter feeds and Facebook feeds with stories of these athletes, these athletes telling their stories. Jim works with countless young athletes in high school and, and, and college um, to write their own stories and in their own voices. And it has been intentional on our part to, to share those stories as much as possible. And then at Outsports, we say courage is contagious. When one, one athlete sees that story of a high school tennis player uh, in Baltimore who's able to come out, a tennis player in D.C. feels a little more courage to do the same. You know, shifty gears for a second, because, you know, we have now seen an openly gay NFL player play an entire season. And Carl has had, you know, almost every single check <laughs> in terms of, you know, his story within the season. He has been injured. He has been the hero of the game. In fact, he was the hero of the very first game he played being openly gay. 
Um, his team made it to the postseason. The coach was forced to resign. <laughs> like every single box. And throughout the entire season, I personally do not recall hearing about any incident of homophobia um, outside of obviously his former coach, John Gruden's emails, <laughs> you know, becoming public. But in terms of Carl being directly targeted by homophobia, I hadn't seen it. Have you guys seen anything like that? No. I mean, in many ways, the opposite. I've seen a lot of social media posts, and we've written about them, of fans of, you know, the Chiefs, the, the blood enemies of the Raiders wearing Nassim jerseys, you know, to a, to, a, to a Chiefs Raiders game, and they're Chiefs fans. That's what I've seen more of, that it's, he's inspired more people. But I've not seen, I mean, is it possible someone said something in their game? I guess so, although in this era, I think that that would have come out at some point. But it's been, not, it's been a non-issue. I mean, I started this thing uh, called the distraction meter as sort of a joke, and the distraction meter was always set to zero. And at a certain point, we just kind of changed it. Sid talked to me about it, and actually, I think Carl wrote Sid and said, you have to keep using the distraction meter, and it was kind of like good points. We just it just became a weekly look at how Nassib did, how many tackles he had, whatever, because there was no distraction, like you said, Elsie. The distraction was Gruden. It was another player. I mean, another instant. Like those were the distractions on the team. It wasn't Carl, uh, and in that case, I thought it was great that there was no attention to him. Basically, after that first game, in terms of the mainstream media, there just wasn't an issue, but not a story. And Elsie, you look across. You know, we're talking a lot about men's sports here. This is not a new phenomenon. I think Jason Collins played a half a season after coming out. He said he heard one idiot say something. Robbie Rogers played several seasons and won the MLS Cup. I think, again, he said he heard one thing. Ryan Ruby came out in, in um, uh, minor league baseball uh, this past summer. He's had nothing but support. This, this is not new. The support for gay athletes in major men's professional sports has been there for years. And, and, and I was so thankful for people like Nassib and Collins and Rogers and all the others who are opening people's eyes to this. Which is a perfect segue, Sid, to you know the conversation I think is really germane today, which is if we have you know, met the challenge, if you will, as a society of having openly gay male athletes in the big sports, and, you know, we've always have dealt with the conversation of open women in, in, in professional leagues as well as in the Olympics and uh, World Cup and et cetera. What about the other letters, <laughs> if you will, you know, in terms of bisexual athletes, trans athletes, non-binary athletes, where do you see us in this conversation of their inclusion in sports today? You know, a lot of those other letters you know, upset what we call the what is the binary of our sports system non-binary athletes and trans athletes there's men's sports and there's women's sports and what are we going to do with people who may not quite fit the way that those structures were established in mainly the 70s and then trans policies created 10 years ago and you know, I, we've been talking about this for a while, but I really do think that these conversations are just really starting and really getting into the nitty gritty. Pairs, figure skating and ice dancing, for example, in the Olympics, there is a non-binary athlete who is, is competing as the male part of their pair. Does, should that be the future 
of ice dancing and pairs figure skating. Should it be opened up to same-sex couples? The Gay Games has same-sex uh, pairs figure skating, but the, the International Skating Union absolutely refuses to even acknowledge it exists. So, you know, a lot of these conversations, so some of those other letters, even as gay men, we're learning what these other letters mean. And the sports world, I think the conversations are, are even though they've been, the conversations have been going on since the 70s, they're, they're really starting in earnest now. And I think a lot of it is um, you have to separate the sporting aspect from, from basically the, what I say the political opportunism is revolving, um, you know, uh, transgender girls, women in sports, where that has become an issue that the that trans uh, women playing sports have been, you know, sort of the, the the whipping people for these these politicians who see this as a winning agenda by claiming they're standing up for you know traditional girls in sports, and so you have that entire fight when the rest of the sports world is still trying to get its arms around things like who should be allowed to participate and in what level. And so I think the political aspect just makes it even a more fraught issue um, for, for, for people who just want to kind of be athletes. I definitely hear what you're saying in terms of how red states or conservative politicians are using it as a wedge issue and using it as an issue to get reelected, quite frankly. Um, but there are also people on the left, people who identify as liberal who also struggle a little bit, particularly when it comes to trans athletes and high school sports in particular. Um, what are they missing in terms of understanding this this conversation? Because it's not as if you can blatantly just say they're using, it, using this as a political reason, but they have concerns. I would tell them that their concerns very well may be valid. So when I talk to transgender athletes, Fallon Fox and, and others, they tell me that there should be regulations and rules as to uh, transition requirements for trans women to compete in women's sports, that they don't believe that those mandates should be just thrown out the window um, for the concept of inclusion. And, and I think what the real debate should be you know, everyone at Outsports has agreed on, on one thing, that there should be a path to inclusion for trans women in women's sports, because that's really what we're talking about. But what that path looks like, I don't think we've collectively figured that out. You know, with the, the, the case getting a lot of attention right now is Leah Thomas, who suddenly popped up in the middle of the Ivy League, and I believe in her first meet, set conference and, and school records, multiple conference and school records. And a lot of people are pointed at and saying, all right, well, something's miss here. I would tell those people who have concerns that it's okay to have concerns. I would encourage them to focus on how can we alleviate my concerns and maintain a path to participation. And I also would say in the short run that if athletes are competing and they are following the current guidelines and rules in their sports or their sports association, then they should be allowed to compete. They shouldn't be unilaterally kicked off a team because they're winning too much if they are following the existing rules of that organization. And so the debate is, yet yeah, should you have different rules, change the rules? That's over for debate. But women who are trans women who are competing right now, 
that's who I feel for because they're just following the rules and yet they're getting so much hate from people who are blaming them for somehow ruining something. And so I do think that, you know, there's Sid gave a great answer, but I think the second answer is, well, if they're following the rules right now and you want to change rules, do that. That's separate, but don't pick on them now for doing what they want to do. And for people who don't know, Leah participated or competed in swimming, um, I believe, three seasons as male. And the NCAA rules permit transgender athletes to compete as women if they have completed one year of testosterone suppression treatment. Now, Leah reportedly has completed more than two years of this treatment before she began breaking records, and she's eligible now to compete in the national championship, although there are some discussions that USA Swimming is considering a new policy which could impact eligibility. Coincidentally, Leah was recently defeated in two events by Isaac Hennick, a transgender swimmer from Yale who is transitioning from female to male. But Isaac is able to compete on the women's team because he has not started his testosterone treatment. So as you can see, it's a complicated conversation and it's one that makes me wonder if this is a case of science failing or is this a case, guys, of the messaging failing? Science evolves. We are constantly learning new things, everything from our solar system to pandemics to, to the role of testosterone in our bodies. The NCA policy was based on what people knew in 2011 and what we knew in 2011 was virtually nothing there were virtually no studies done on trans athletes when the current when the well they've abandoned it just a couple weeks ago but when essentially the current nca policy was created they just took their best guess since then the quote-unquote science our which is essentially our understanding of nature has changed and so, I, you know, I think, like I said, these conversations are just really now starting in earnest because we're getting more and more information and more and more data points. So I wouldn't say it's, 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 it's quote unquote, the science failing. Science is our understanding of nature and it's constantly changing. And, and as it changes, trans inclusion policies are going to change as well. When... You think about the journey of our community when it comes to sports. Where do you peg the turning point of the conversation? Is there a law? Is there a political figure? Is there an athlete that you think about and go, that's when things began to change and there was more openness? There's historic figures like Dave Cope, um, you know, Martina in, in, in their sports. To me, at some level, I think a lot of it had to do with technology and, and the internet and then the creation of social media because it, it more than anything else connected people who never could have been connected. So I think to me, the technology is for LGBTQ has been a godsend, um, separate from what it's done to other, <laughs> other parts of society with social media. We could have that conversation. <laughs> But in terms of just to be able to connect people who would often have felt alone and isolated, I don't know anybody like myself, wow, they see a story and, oh, my God, that guy's a swimmer too, and all of a sudden they have a, a network of people they're connecting with. I have a moment, LZ. To me, this the, it, and it was, for me, the turning point of this conversation. It's when my eyes opened. And it was in 2007 when John Amici came out publicly. John Amici was a... a, a quote unquote journeyman NBA basketball player he played for numerous teams a season here a couple seasons there 
wasn't a superstar. He's you know, a guy who played in the league. And he came out publicly, and the vast majority of responses by current players, former players, was either eh or I support this guy. The league supported him. The media supported him. A week later, Tim Hardaway, one of the great players in the history of the NBA, beloved, said in a radio interview with Dan Lebicard, in regards to John Amici, I hate gay people. He had to change the name of his businesses. His businesses shut down. He was disinvited from the All-Star game by the NBA, and he was tarred and feathered. And I think because it was, I hate gay people. People might say, I don't understand gay people. I don't agree with people, but I hate gay people. It was a moment where people said, I don't go there. And to have a, a gay journeyman player be overwhelmingly accepted and approved by players and fans and media and to have a, a superstar banished from the sport for homophobia, that juxtaposition for me changed how I looked. At sports. You know, said what was quite remarkable at that time, and I was at ESPN when that when John both came out as well as the follow up with, with Tim Hardaway. What was so heartbreaking for me um, as a openly gay journalist in sports was that I think this was like maybe the third time in which a particularly an NBA player and NBA is like my favorite league um, that I really loved just came out with some real homophobic remarks and comments and it forced me to have to reassess not just the athlete and how I felt about him but just my place in the sports world like Tim Hardaway was my dog you could I like I tried to get that crossover dribble so hard <laughs> I wanted the I wanted the UTEP two steps so hard and then when he said that I was like here I am trying to be like you and you hate me and it was like it was like when Iverson, you know, when he had his rap album, and I loved me some Allen Iverson, and he drops his album, and it's filled with all these homophobic slurs, and I'm like, I'm trying to be like you, and you hate me, you know. I, I sorry, you just triggered something when you brought that moment up because it it, it just reminded me of you know, and, and the same thing happened to me with Kobe when Kobe dropped that you know anti-gay slur at, directed towards a referee. It was just sort of like. I'm trying to emulate you on every single basketball court <laughs> on the face of the planet. And you've been carrying these feelings about who I am without ever meeting me. It's just a weird, weird world to be in. I'm assuming you guys have had those moments as well. Yeah. I mean, it, I, it's like you're, the people you respect or you like or you root for, and all of a sudden they say something, it does make you think, really? <laughs> um, did I misjudge you? Or, you know, in the case of, I think, both Hardaway and Kobe, they they publicly change their tune and, and, you know, seem that they got it finally. And I think that's, that's the victory that seeing more and more people are getting it, that we used to write about homophobia in sports all the time. We're just writing about it less because it's happening less. And I think athletes are being more careful what they're saying on social media, obviously, but that's a victory to me. Um, but we're not seeing it as much in sports. It just seems, at least in pro sports, you're just, it's simply not a thing in the U.S. right now. And I want to just underscore what, what Jim mentioned. Uh, Kobe Bryant went on to uh, record a PSA of, about LGBTQ inclusion and spoke very positively about the community. Tim Hardaway went on to champion LGBTQ rights in El Paso and in Florida. In fact, I, it was a, 
it was a, a marriage petition for same-sex marriage in Florida, in Equality Florida, asked Tim Hardaway to be the first signatory on that petition, and he agreed. He was the first signatory on a petition to legalize <laughs> same-sex marriage about, I think it was six years after he did that. I love these redemption stories in sports because I think that at the end of the day, when these people, coaches and athletes really think about it, they really don't have an issue with gay people. They'd be stuck in this weird mentality of sports. And I think when you give most people in sports an opportunity to make amends for what they've done, they do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sid, Jim, thank you both so much for all of your hard work in this space, continue hard work in this space. Last question for you. Who should we be rooting for in the Winter Olympics? We have Timothy LeDuc on uh, this episode in figure skating, but is there anyone else we should be keeping our eye on, if not flat out Americans, American adjacent, perhaps? Andrew Blazer and the Skeleton. There's 33 other athletes. I'd root, we're rooting for them all. Um, Bell Brockhoff from Australia, who's a snowboarder. The one I would point out is Brittany Bowe. She's been chasing Olympic gold medal for a while. She's a favorite in the 1,000 meters to win gold. She's a world champion. She won a bronze before. An American hasn't won an individual speed skating medal at the Olympics in years. So I would say Brittany Bowe in speed skating. Yeah, there's a bunch. Uh, I would tell people, go check our list, and that's who you can root for in the Olympics, those 33. And where would they find your list? Just go to outsports.com, and it's uh, at the very top. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Elsie. Thank you. Bye. Coming up on the next episode of Life Out Loud, we're going to check in with the hilarious and always brutally honest T.S. Madison. I identify as a trans woman. I was a sex worker in the sex industry, whatever. I'm no longer that. I am now a television producer, an actress, a comedian. She ain't shy about telling it like it is whether you want to hear it or not. What are you going to do for a living if, if, if every job is telling you, take all of that off so that you don't disrupt the other people. Take that off. Take your life off to make everybody else over here comfortable. Why? We're talking trans acceptance with Maddie next week on Life Out Loud. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And remember to hit subscribe if you haven't already. And please, please, please tell your friends, your family, your loved ones, your side pieces, your main pieces, anyone who you think could benefit from listening to these incredible stories from these remarkable people. And also, just take a moment to leave us a rating and review. That goes a long way to helping us get the word out. And more importantly, keep going. Life Out Loud with LG Granderson, a production of ABC Audio, produced by my friend Trevor Hastings. Same producer is Brenda Salinas Baker. Our amazing production team includes David Toledo, Vika Arison, and Carrie Ann Thomas. The executive producer of Life Out Loud is Liz Alessi. A big shout out to Lakia Brown, Joe Moore, Robert Zepeda, Tony Morrison, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, and Stacia Tashisku. I'm Elsie Granderson. This, this is that, that good, good. good.